but goodbyes can be a mixture of both pain and blessing. I'm sure you guys can attest to that with some stories in your life. Uh, I experienced this uh, most clearly when I was 12 years old, when my mother and I moved from Long Beach, California to Forsyth County, Georgia, right? I don't, yeah, you're like, where is that? Exactly. Uh, we, we left everything that I, I knew and loved. My, my dad was back in California. I'm an only child. My cousins were like siblings to me. Uh, the beach, the California weather, right? Uh, Disneyland. We left all of that to move to North Georgia. And just in case you're wondering, North Georgia has none of those things I just mentioned, right? Uh, no beach, uh, ridiculous humidity, Right, like this afternoon when you're like, man, it's hot, just imagine that being three times worse and then someone dumping water on you and you're in Georgia, right? No friends for a while, just it was, it was, it was tough, right? It was a difficult goodbye, but God in his providence would take what was bitter and make it sweet. As we moved, I met my future wife. I met Lauren when I was 12, she was 13. Shortly after our move, I, I met Jesus God in His grace converted me. I made friends, uh, friendships that have lasted a, a lifetime. And looking back now, though the weather's still terrible, right? Uh, but reflecting, this bitter goodbye ended up being the soil for some of the richest blessings in my life. And again, I'm sure you could give examples of that as well. As we come to John 14 this morning, we're, we're in the midst of, we started it last week, a bitter goodbye. Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's telling them he's about to go to the cross. It's going to happen the next day. And they are confused and they're discouraged. In Jesus' words, their hearts are troubled. And in order to understand that, we have to remember the context and what we saw in chapter 13. What's going on? Remember, Jesus has just told his disciples that Judas... One of these brothers who they were with for three years, they did life together. Judas would betray him, and then Judas leaves to go do that in this Passover meal. They're also trying to process this idea that Jesus has told them multiple times that he's actually going to, to die. They're processing his impending death. And if we back up a little bit in chapter 13, the end of chapter 13, verse 36, we see this when Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. He's talking about his death on the cross. But you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So you hear that confusion. Why can I go where you're going? But you also hear something that the disciples struggled with. You see, the, the Jews of Jesus' day, including his disciples, had this understanding of the Messiah, the promised one, as one who would come, as a military, David-like political leader and would overthrow those who oppress Israel. In their case, Rome. And so the disciples are confused and they're discouraged. They're thinking, wait a second, you're not supposed to die. Rome is supposed to die. You're, you're supposed to be the king who conquers. What are you talking about? Not understanding that, yes, Jesus is the king who conquers, but he doesn't conquer as a military, political ruler who fits into their ideology. He conquers as a suffering servant. So Peter here is essentially saying, 
Jesus, I would die for the cause. I would die before I let you die. So there's confusion there. Then, as if betrayal from one of their beloved brothers and this idea of death were not enough to cause sorrow, Jesus Jesus then tells Peter that the rock-solid leader of the disciples is going to betray them. End of chapter 13, verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So when you take all those things together, you begin to understand why they're sorrowful and confused and their hearts are troubled. To the disciples, the cause to which they have given their very lives is crumbling before their very eyes. And that's the scene in which Jesus says, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. See, what Jesus is doing in this passage this morning is he's calling them to faith in the face of a difficult goodbye. And he's spending the rest of this passage, 14, 1 through 14, explaining how though this goodbye, it's going to be painful, yes, but it actually will serve to bless you, my disciples. The same is true for us today. It'll serve to bless us. Us. And so what we see as we walk through this is three blessings of Jesus' departure. First, Jesus is going to tell us of a sure future with Christ. Second, a clear vision of the Father. And third, a divine power of the Spirit. So first we see as we jump in a sure future with Christ. So Jesus, again, he's calling his disciples to believe in him. He's saying there are blessings that are coming that will bring you comfort now. But before we even get to that, I want you to consider these words of comfort from Jesus. And think about what's about to happen to him. He's the one who's about to be betrayed, right? He's the one who is about to be arrested, abandoned by his closest friends, given a mock trial, beaten, stripped, and nailed to a wooden cross. That's about to happen to him, and he knows it. And most devastating of all, he is the one who is about to be for a time forsaken by the Father as he bears the sins of his people. Yet, what is Jesus doing? He's comforting his disciples. See, they they should be the ones comforting him, right? But Jesus, his heart is for his weary, discouraged sinner disciples. So friend, if you ever wonder where Jesus is in those moments of greatest discouragement and greatest struggle and when you feel like like you're just barely clinging to your faith, remember this passage and remember that Jesus' heart is for you. He, He is by your side desiring to bring comfort to your weary soul. He is bringing them comfort in the moment of darkness for himself shows us a testimony of what his heart is like for sinners like us, right? So then, with this heart for these disciples, the first thing he mentions is this promise of a future dwelling place. So as we're considering this sure future with Christ, look at verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's talking about heaven here. The Father's house is heaven. It's the place of eternal blessing in the presence of the Father for those who believe in Jesus. That's what's coming. Now, we don't want to read too far into the house metaphor. Some translations in church history have taken rooms and, and translated that as mansions. And so you're like, man, am I going to get like a, a nice big poppy style mansion 
in heaven? No, that's reading too far into it. The point here that Jesus is making is that the disciples will find comfort in their sorrows now if they look to the future and gaze upon this promise of eternal dwelling with the Father. Because there, heaven, is a place there will, where there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. There will be only the fullness of joy in God's presence. So he's saying, listen, I know this is tough, but I'm going to prepare this place for you. The Father's dwelling place is promised for you who believe. Isaac Watts was a pastor and hymn writer, and he, he reflects on heaven. In one of the verses of his hymns, he says this, There, heaven, would I find a settled rest while others come and go. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. See, Jesus is saying, brothers, to his disciples, and to us today, brothers and sisters, I know this is hard for you, but there's a place I'm preparing for you that once you get there, you'll never want to leave. You won't feel like a visitor. You'll feel ultimately at home in the presence of the Father, as if that were always your home. Because listen, that's what you were created for. That's what's coming, the sure future of heaven. I'd ask you, have you ever had a moment so enjoyable where you've said, man, I wish this would never end, right? Maybe it's a time with family or a beautiful sunset or whatever it may be, and you're thinking, I just want this to go on forever. Well, in heaven, that greatest joy will be magnified beyond our comprehension, and it will never end. It will last forever, right? Jesus promises this to them and to us, and then we see that the promised return of Jesus. He's not just saying, I'm, I'm preparing the house, but he's saying, if I go and prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and take you to myself that where I'm going you may be also. So how does Jesus prepare this place? Well, he's, he's actually referring to the cross. You can't get to heaven unless I die for you on this cross, defeating sin and death, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, and act as the mediator between you, sinful man, and God. So I'm going to prepare this place so that you can be brought in to the presence of God. Not only that, he's also saying that where I am, you may be also. He's saying, I long to be with you. Jesus wants to be with his people so much so that he's willing to lay down his life this next day so that we may be brought to God. So that we may be no more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. Then Jesus says in verse 4, he tells us, listen, you guys already know the way to this place. You know the way to where I'm going. Now this might seem strange because in the very next verse, what does Thomas say? Verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. <laughs> We don't know what you're talking about. How can we know the way? And then remember 1336, what does Peter say? Lord, where are you going? So it appears they actually don't know the way, but Jesus says, no, you actually, you do know the way. So Jesus responds to the question in verse 6 with one of the most famous verses on what we would call the exclusivity of Christ. They're saying, we don't know the way. And he says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen guys, you're looking for some secret pathway as if there's some code to crack to get to heaven, but the pathway to heaven is not this road to follow, it's a person to be embraced. So you do know the way because you know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I am the way to this future with the Father. And Jesus, in a short sentence, verse 6, there have been whole sermons preached on just these three words, way, truth, and life. He jam-packs so much in here. Let's consider it for a moment. Jesus says, I am the way. And this is what we mean by exclusivity of Christ. Jesus does not present himself as I am a way, I am one of many ways. He wasn't a religious pluralist saying, you know, there's many ways to get to the the truth, but it all sort of terminates in the same place. Nope. Instead, he says, listen, you can't gain heaven, you can't gain eternal life, and you can't come into the presence of God, the Father, apart from faith in me only. I am the way. At this point, he belabors because he repeats it at the end. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way. Then he says the truth. This is one of John's favorite themes. He, Jesus is the truth, the supreme revelation of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. And throughout our series, if you've noticed, we've constantly been going back to John chapter 1, right? the prologue, where John hammers home this, hammers home this point that Jesus himself is the revelation of God. Consider John 1, verses 17 and 18. John says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him the Father known. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. Again, John's told us in John 1, verse 4, Jesus, in Jesus is life, and the life was the light of man. What do we see in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus? He said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will never die. And he doesn't just mean breath in your lungs, eternal life, though certainly that, but what he's saying is no, in me is yes, rescue from death, but more than that, the fullness and joy of knowing God. So you see how all these fit together? Because Jesus is the true revelation of God, And because he is the light and life of God, he is the only way to know God. There is no other way aside from belief in Christ. And the right response to this, brothers and sisters, is is worship. Thomas Kempis wrote on this. He paraphrases the words of Jesus in a poetic way. Listen to what he says. He says, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable, that means unbreakable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. That's the message of hope that Jesus gives to his troubled disciples. And friends, are we not like the disciples here? Often confused? often discouraged and anxious about what the future holds. Right? If there's one thing 2020 has taught us, it's that you have no idea what's going to happen next. Right? You know how excited I was that baseball kind of came back this week? Right? I thought it was over. I had no idea. And who knows? 50 games? Anyways, I'll, I'll leave baseball alone. Right? But you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or with your job or with your family, right? But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, this is tough. You're troubled and confused, disciples, by this this present. And I understand it's a difficult goodbye. You cannot know the details of your life. But Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, the destination is as sure as the sun rising this morning. 
even more so. Right? The words of Christ here are meant to bring us comfort. Right? But also, we're meant to evaluate our lives in, in, in light of what Jesus says, right? And let the Lord bring in correction. Friends, where are we looking to for our ultimate hope for the future? We're so easy lured away from Christ by other false hopes, whether in ourself or, or government or whatever it may be, or money, right? Essentially, what Thomas is asking in verse 5, when he says, how can we know the way? He's essentially saying, Jesus, please tell me where to place my hope. And Jesus says to him, and he says to you and I this morning, place your hope in me. Place your hope in me. And that leads us to number two. So we see a, a sure future with Christ, and then second, we see a clear vision of the Father. Look at verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, again, there's a few verses like this in this passage where it seems a little confusing at first. Right? Do they know him or not? Right? The first half of the verse says, you know me, or implies that they don't know Jesus. He's saying, if you had known me, which you don't, guys, clearly, you would have known the Father. And then Philip's request to see the Father in the next verse proves this. But then Jesus says, okay, from now on, you do know me. So what's he saying here? Well, let me try to illustrate this point with a, with a story. So imagine you have a really good friend, right? And you've known him for a few years, and you've spent time together. You've shared meals. You're, you've gone on trips. You've talked about life and struggles, and you know about work, uh, hobbies, all of those things, family history. And he becomes one of your closest friends. Then one evening, you're sharing a meal together. And he mentions something about his inheritance. And, and you look at him puzzled. Inheritance? What, what inheritance? And he proceeds to tell you about the unimaginable wealth that he's inherited from his father. And you're shocked. Like, he, he told you his father was wealthy before, but you didn't, you didn't know he was that wealthy. After all, your friend lived a, a pretty modest life. And so you say, I've never heard this before. But then... You start to think about it. You think about past conversations and you start to connect the dots and you realize as you put the pieces together that this new information about your friend's identity wasn't exactly hidden. And if you would have been paying attention, you would have understood that he did have this inheritance. You just didn't realize it until now. You see, that's, that's similar to what's happening to the disciples. The, G, the disciples knew Jesus. They were with him every waking moment for three years. They knew him better than anyone, but at a deeper level, they didn't yet realize the most important fact about his identity, that he is the revelation of the Father. And they will soon realize that on the other side of the cross, an empty grave. Right? So this is why we come to, to verse 8, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Even though they're in close proximity to Jesus, they don't understand that He is the revelation of the Father. They still don't get it. And so to understand this, too, what, what Philip's asking for here, we've got to back up a, li a little bit and first realize that that request in verse 8 is a good desire. Right? Philip recognizes that there's nothing greater, nothing more pleasurable, nothing more desirable. There's no greater good than seeing God in the fullness of His glory. And that's what they desire. He's saying, we want to see God. 
Man was created in the image of God to be in the presence of God. So ever since sin severed that relationship, the desire of every longing heart, not just religious longing hearts, but the desire of every longing heart is to catch a glimpse of the greatest pleasure and satisfaction. That's what we're all on in pursuit of. And so Philip says, show us God. That's what he wants to see. And he even knows something that many of us don't recognize. The greatest satisfaction is not found in anything else but in God himself. And we get glimpses of this all throughout the Bible. I just want to draw your attention to one this morning, Exodus chapter 33. Moses asks essentially the same question as Philip. Verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. Right? That's what Philip's saying. Show us the Father and it would be enough. And here's what God said to Moses when he wanted to see the glory of God. He said, verse 19 of Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. You see what's happening here? Even Moses, the close friend of God, couldn't see the fullness of God's glory, only the the afterglow as it were. Why? Because for sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Yet this is exactly what Philip desires. He says, it would be enough. I would be fully satisfied, Jesus, if you would just show us God, the Father. After all, we've seen everything else, right? We've seen you turn water into wine. We've seen you heal the sick, feed the multitudes, walk on water, restore sight to the blind. Jesus, we've, e- we've even seen you raise your dead friend Lazarus to life. Now, that's all great, but we want the big one. Show us God. Then Jesus responds in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus' response is a rebuke. R.C. Sproul says, if there is any place in the scripture where we see Jesus almost becoming impatient, annoyed, and irritated with his disciples, I think this may be the place. But, let's remember, Jesus isn't like us, right? He doesn't brush them off. I'm sick of you guys. You're too thick-headed. No, instead... He rebukes them, yes, but because he loves them and he reminds them of what he's already declared. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The answer to Philip's desire, and friends, the answer to your and I's ultimate desire is met in Jesus Christ. And so before we're too quick to judge these disciples for their thick-headedness, let's acknowledge that we're, we're the same. See, the problem for us is not that we seek satisfaction and pleasure. The problem for for us is not that we want glory in this life. That's part of what it means to be human. 
That's how God created us. The problem is that we seek such satisfaction in all of the wrong places. So we can take this statement and put in our own thing in that blank, right? Show me blank and it'll be enough. God, show me financial security and it'll be enough. Show me a a good stable career and it will be enough. Show me a life of physical pleasures and comforts and it will be enough. A perfect relationship, whatever it may be. And we're saying, give us this, God, and we, then we will be satisfied. See, friends, all of those things are wonderful gifts from God, but terrible substitutes for the all-satisfying pleasure of knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Where is this request of Philip and Moses and you and I as we seek satisfaction? Where is it answered? In the person of Jesus Christ. Where do we see the glory of God? In Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the, here it is, glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So whereas Moses had to be shielded from the face of God, God has in his grace given us Jesus and said, you want the all-satisfying pleasure of my presence? Here he is. Search no more. It will be enough for you. And he tells us in the next verse, how is this clear vision, this all-satisfying vision of the Father attained? Verse 11, believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he says, listen, if you have a hard time believing my words, which clearly you guys do, believe on account of the works themselves. He's saying it's not just my words, but also my miraculous signs that serve as the validation of who I am. And he's calling his disciples and us to place our hope and find our ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone who reveals the Father to us. And that leads us to number three, a divine power of the Spirit. So we have a sure future with Christ, a clear vision of the Father, and a divine power of the Spirit. Now these first two points were more passive, right? Here's here's what happens when you believe. Here's who Jesus is for you. Now this one is is a little more active for us. Now he's saying, here is what happens when you believe. He says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, this is a tough text. We call it a difficult text because at first glance, it could appear, and many have said this, that this means that therefore, if you are a Christian, you will do greater miracles than Jesus. Some would say that's what he's talking about here. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying for a few reasons. First, the word works here is not exclusively used for miracles in John's gospel. In chapter 6, Jesus says that the work of God is that you may believe. So he calls belief a work. Uh, In John chapter 8, he refers to Abraham's good deeds as, as works. And then remember, the theme of John's gospel is signs. That's the language he uses. So the word works doesn't automatically mean miracles. But second, and this is probably a little more obvious, if Jesus is promising that those who believe, not just the disciples, but all who believe will do greater miracles, then this promise hasn't come true. Because if you read through in the book of Acts, you see them doing amazing things. But you don't see them doing greater things in Jesus. They don't raise someone who's deader than Lazarus, or sicker, or more demon-possessed, right? And then, by the way, 
no one except for Jesus has died for and atoned for the sins of man. And I'm, I'm pretty sure none of you have raised the dead lately, right? So if that's what Jesus means, then the promise just didn't come true, which is clearly not the case. This isn't to deny that miracles can't, can be done today. Absolutely, they can. But that's just not what Jesus is talking about here. So what does he mean? Well, here, here, here's what I would say. The greater works in John 14, 12 are the spirit-empowered words and works of gospel proclamation that lead to the salvation of sinners. Okay, so Jesus is, is telling us, because I'll soon accomplish salvation by my death and resurrection, ascend to the Father and send my spirit, you will go out and my work will continue through you. Let me show you this briefly. Jesus hinted at this already in his, his ministry. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples for ministry. They come back and they're ecstatic. They're like, Jesus, listen, the demons are subject to us. We can cast out demons. Isn't that amazing? They're thinking these works are incredible, and they're right. But notice how Jesus responds in Luke 10, 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus is in essence saying, listen, do you know what's greater than casting out demons? The eternal salvation of sinners. That's an incredible work. When we come to the book of Acts, we find 120 disciples gathered at the beginning of the book after Jesus has ascended. That's really what the, the extent of Jesus' uh, ministry there of believers. And then he sends the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people are added to the church in an instant. And the numbers continue to grow. But not just numerically. Think geographically. Jesus' ministry was limited to really the small area while he was on earth in Palestine. But in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fills God's people the gospel spreads like wildfire. You come to the end of Acts and the gospel has made it to Rome, the end of the known world at the time. And it continues to here we are today. See, friends, if we believe the gospel, this is what Jesus is saying, if we believe the gospel, this is our work. Bringing the gospel to those around us. In our series on the church, Pastor Clint gave a definition that the church that we have visited again and again, he said this, the church is the beloved and redeemed people of God filled with the presence of God, Holy Spirit, and set apart for the purposes or mission of God in the world. Right? That's what God has called us to. That's our ultimate desire is to glorify God by making disciples. Right? So if you've, if you've heard this and you've ever thought, man, why after I became a Christian didn't God just like beam me up to heaven? And in 2020 you're like, this would be a good time to do it, God, right? Why did, why did he leave us here? Well, because our loving and merciful God, who's given us a sure heavenly future in Christ, he's given us a clear vision of him as the Father, he wants as many sinners as possible to experience the all-satisfying joy of knowing him for all eternity. We have the privilege of taking that work to those around us and telling others of the way, the truth, and the life. That's the greater work that Jesus has called and empowered us so ask yourself, who in your life needs to hear the gospel? Who needs to hear of the sure hope of heaven? Because they constantly place their hope in things that fall short. Who do you know that is striving for satisfaction in all the wrong places and needs a clear vision of the all-satisfying Father? 
the great work of bringing the gospel to these people is not reserved for pastors or professional missionaries, whatever that is, or theologians. It's the work, it's the privilege of every single Christian. And he's filled us with his spirit to accomplish it. And as Rosaria Butterfield says, God didn't get your address wrong. He has you in your home, in your community, in your workplace, in your family, in your sphere of friends, so that by the power of his spirit, you can accomplish this greater work, or rather he could accomplish it through you. And then our passage ends today by Jesus telling us how we go about this work. Look at verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what is Jesus saying? He turns to prayer. This is the work you're called to. Now you need to pray. He says, ask and I will do it. Now this is another potentially tough text, but Jesus is not saying ask for whatever you want. Ask for that Ferrari Ask for that pay raise, and as long as you have enough faith, he will do it. No, notice that he says, pray in his name. That means as a redeemed sinner, praying according to the will of God, as your desires are aligned with his, you'll pray for what he wants, and God in his grace, according to his will, will answer those prayers as he sees fit. Jesus modeled this for us, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Now, in the context of bringing the gospel to others, prayer is foundational, isn't it? You can't save a sinner. You can't change a heart. You can't convince someone, even if you're the greatest apologist, to convert to Christianity. So you need to pray, pray, and then pray some more for God to work. Pray for opportunities. You say, man, I don't really have gospel opportunities. Pray for them, and you know what you'll find? You actually do have opportunities, and the Spirit will reveal them to you. Pray for boldness when those opportunities arise to speak the gospel of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Here's a memorable way to put it. I don't know who originally said it, but talk to God about man before you talk to man about God. Pray as you seek to do the work that God has called you to. Second, trust. Notice at the end of verse 14, I love this. Jesus says, I will do it. Yes, this is your work, but really, not really. I'm the one who's going to do this work through you. I'm not just checking out. I'm sending my spirit to dwell within you. He's saying, you can't do this without me. That's why the next several chapters are focused on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this should give us confidence in the mission, doesn't it? I pray it does. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I would add to this, this needs to be a patient trust. A trust that says, I'm going to stay the course even after a week, even after a month, even after a year. I feel like there's no progress with my friend or loved one or there's no growth in the church. I heard one pastor say, don't overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. We need to trust God for this work for the long haul. And then lastly, Obey. Pray, trust, and obey. I steal this from Pastor Clint's passage next week. Sorry, Clint. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Doesn't get much more simple than that, does it? He goes on to show us that even our obedience is dependent upon the helper, the Holy Spirit. I love the hymn, the simple hymn, Trust and Obey. It summarizes this passage so well. It says, Trust and obey. For there's no other way 
to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Jesus began this passage in verse 1 by calling his disciples and each one of us to trust, believe in God, believe also in me. This is the blessing of Jesus' goodbye. Believe that you have a sure heavenly future with Christ. Believe that he gives an all-satisfying vision of the Father. Believe that he fills you with the Spirit to do his work. And as you believe, obey. So brothers and sisters, let's, as we lean into Jesus by grace through faith, Let's, let's have that vision of the sure future with Christ. That vision of, of all-satisfying presence of the Father in Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's obey Him. Let's pray together.